it's time to face facts. Getting older can be scary. And when you, your spouse, or your parents are getting up there in age, being unprepared can turn the golden years into the darkest years of your life. That's why the Smart Planning 101 podcast is here to shed some light on intelligent estate planning, strategic financial decision-making, healthcare options, and all things related to growing older with dignity. Here's your host, elder law attorney, Nicole Whip. Hello, smart planners. Today, I'd like to share an interview with Steve Frank, the founder and CEO of Evolution 360, a professional personal and executive leadership coaching firm in Birmingham, Michigan. Steve shares the journey of his mother's descent into Alzheimer's and the challenges he and his family faced. He also draws upon his experience as a leadership coach to give some real advice about how to manage and cope when a loved one is faced with the unthinkable and why taking a leadership role during times of healthcare crisis is crucial. Steve, welcome to Smart Planning 101. Um, I wanted to have you tell me a little bit about yourself first, and then tell me a little bit about your mother and what led you down the journey that you're going to talk to us about today. Sure, Nicole. Thanks. Um, So I am a leadership coach, personal executive leadership coaching. Um, I work both with individuals and with corporations. Uh, So I have people who come to me directly as well as assignments I get from HR departments or other avenues through an organization, but it's all about leadership. So I say it's personal executive leadership because I don't think you can separate the two out and there's a big difference between managing your life and leading your life, both professionally and personally. And so I was intrigued when you reached out about this because it really is about taking a leadership role in the long-term care, um, especially when faced with a situation like my mom's, which was Alzheimer's. Um, And you can find yourself falling into the managing rather than leading trap. And that's interesting that you say that. I I like your take on it because I usually refer to it in the sense of taking control. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's the same. Yeah, it's the same concept, like leadership in your life, leadership in your business, leadership in many aspects, but also it's leadership in your personal life or and also known as taking control. um, And how do we take control in a way that we can benefit ourselves and the people that we love? So so your mother had Alzheimer's. Tell us a little bit about what um, how you found out. Um. So, yeah, absolutely. And just to go back for a second, leadership is about vision, right? And having a vision of what you want to reach, what outcome. And it comes into values and beliefs. And so with the care, it was really this vision of what, are, what do we really want in the long term for this, not just today. Um, so my mom... Um, I have my, my folks, I grew up in Philadelphia and my folks, um, my father still lives in Philadelphia. Um, my folks were in Philadelphia by themselves and I've been in Michigan for 25 years now. 
Um, I have a brother who lives in the New York area who saw my parents more frequently than I did, although from the day that I left for college, I really, there are very few days that I didn't speak to my mother. Um, we just were, and both my parents, but we were very close. And so we used to speak via phone almost every single day. For me, I think because of that, it was somewhat easier for me to see the decline and see that things were changing because it's very hard to hide that on a phone conversation. Oh, that's interesting. Um, So from your perspective, the fact that you talked to our daily on the phone and that there wasn't that facial interface made it a little bit easier in your your perception to figure out that there was a problem. It did, for me anyway, because I was able to see what was happening on the phone and then when I saw her, I really could see big changes. Okay, so what were those changes? Uh, you know what? It was um, the only way I can describe it. It was a presence. It was a look in the eyes. It was facial expressions. It was recognition. There, there was that. Um, there also were the little changes in terms of the same stories over and over. We were very lucky. My mother stopped herself from driving. So at a, at a very early point in it, I think what happens so often in families is people rationalize or make excuses. So I would say to my father, you know, there's stuff going on. Mom's not driving for a reason. And he would say, no, she's not driving because she had three car accidents and she's really nervous and I can drive. But the truth of the matter is she was a passenger in all three car accidents. She was never the one driving. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, So, but then I'd go to Philly for a visit and I'd be in the car with her and all of a sudden she'd say, why are you going this way? I would say, well, here's where we're going. Isn't this the right way? I haven't lived here in a while, but isn't this how we go? And she'd go, oh, oh yeah, right. This is exactly the right way to go. But so I, while never really discussed it with her, firmly believe she stopped herself from driving because she knew she was confused about how to get places. So would you say at that point when, when you saw that happening that your mom was what in, I typically will talk to clients, I call it the gray zone, where she was starting to have diminished capacity, but still had quite a strong recognition of what was happening around her on a day-to-day basis. Like she knew where she was, she knew who she was, um, but she may not have been or was definitely losing competence to manage her own affairs. Absolutely. So my father uh, retired at the age of 65 and my mother and father spent every day together from that point on. They went to the gym together five days a week. They did everything. So she was able to, she would drive every now and then short distances. She absolutely knew, I believe, what was going on. And at the time she got the diagnosis, she was still cognizant enough to know she got the diagnosis, to get very angry about it, to get very embarrassed about it. And they really isolated themselves because she wanted nobody to know about it. Um, And she continued going to the gym five days a week up until really the point we had to move her out. And we, you know, we'll talk more about that later. But so she was very cognizant, but also definitely had diminished capacities. 
I think that the rest of the family really accepted it a little more, caught on to it a little more when we were all away for my parents' 50th anniversary. And we were having brunch in a hotel and she got up to go to the bathroom with my niece and they got lost coming back to brunch. They couldn't quite find their way back to the restaurant. How old was your niece? Oh, at the, she was young at the time. She was probably four or five. Okay. So yeah, the fact that the young child didn't know where she was going exactly. was understandable. So that's interesting. Okay. You said a couple of things that I want to ask you a little bit more about. So one of the things that you mentioned was the fact that your father seemed to be in a great deal of denial. Um, and that is really common, right? We don't mm-hmm. want, especially, I'm sure that your father was frightened of what was happening to his wife. Right, right. So did you ever get a chance to talk to him about that? Or what was his reaction when you tried to bring it up? I mean, you said he was denying it, but did he ever get angry? I mean, how, how was a conversation? He, he never got really <coughs> angry about it. He just was not willing to accept it. I mean, he would cover for her. He would finish sentences. He would finish stories. You know, he would do all those sorts of things. A little bit of brief background on it is my father, um, in some ways, is a medical miracle. He had a massive, massive coronary at the age of 50 that they didn't think he was going to make it through the night. I was a junior in college, and my mother really like just swooped in and became caretaker and protector of him. My father is 82 right now and living well, right? With, in lay terms, as I understand it, about half of a functioning heart. He, he did so, the heart attack did so much damage, he wasn't eligible for bypass or anything. There was nothing to salvage. And yet he still is with us and still And he's still with around. us, but he, so he was very used to being cared for. Mm. And he wasn't mentally equipped or emotionally equipped to be the caretaker. That said, he did an amazing job based on what his capabilities were. He, he had a hard time detaching. He wrote the love that my parents, I mean, the doctors, the nursing, everyone used to say to me, the love that your parents have for each other is incredible. He sat by her bed every single day. He would, until we moved, till we sold the house, which we'll get into all that, he would drive 45 minutes each way, two to three times a day to be with her. That's dedication. Yeah. Well, okay, but wait a minute. Huh. Well, I'm gonna, I, have to, I have to ask you something, though, because that's really interesting. I mean, you said within his capabilities and things like that, and he's driving all this distance and stuff. So the point, really, though, is that maybe he, as much as um, the heart was willing, the mind was willing, the body and soul and the emotion was willing to be the caretaker, maybe he wasn't the best person um, because maybe he wasn't as equipped as somebody else might have been. And then the second thing is, is that even as much as he was willing, it was hard on him, right? That's a lot of things to do. It's much more the latter. It was really hard on him. And so the discussions that we had to have repeatedly were, you need to take care of yourself or you won't be able to be there to take care of of her. And he kept saying, no, the most important thing is that I'm here to take care of her. So he, my mother was a very proud woman. Um, And like you said before, that gray zone, she was with it enough to 
say, I don't want anyone in the house. I don't need help. I don't need any of these things. We are fine. And so my father was with her all the time, which was very hard emotionally and physically on him, right? And that's an interesting thing because you said that your mom was very adamant, right, about not having people in the house, et cetera, Absolutely. right? And yet, clearly, that might not have been the best thing for your father. And yet, your father was willing to do what she wanted because he loves her, right? Absolutely. And so now we have a situation where there's no good solution, right? Because mom's insistent, dad is willing, dad is killing himself, taking care of mom or, you know, whatever. And, um, and, and how as children are you guys dealing with that situation, that exact point? Tough, right? So emotionally it was miserable on me. There were several times, uh, and fortunately I was in a position that I could do it work-wise. There were several times before we made some major changes that I would hop in the car at two o'clock in Detroit and drive to Philadelphia. 11 hours? Oh, ten, yeah, 10 hours door to door. Did that several times, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And that was 2009. It, it was hard. You know, it was a really, it, it was a tough thing. 2009, 2010 was really where it started to get more serious. You know, as a little bit of background, my mother was relatively young when she started really showing these symptoms. What is relatively uh, young? Still in her 60s. Wow. Yeah, that is relative. Looked, you know, I, and I, I'm, I know I'm a little biased, but people, was, I mean, looked like she was maybe in her 50s. Wow. Right. Yeah. But as it got worse, her appearance declined too because she wasn't able to get herself ready the same way. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But so my here was a woman who went to the gym five days a week. She looked really young. She had all this stuff. Right. But her mental capacity was definitely declining as that was happening, which I think isn't all that uncommon. She went through a really angry phase and somewhat of a violent phase. So she was combative. Combative. And that's when we really had to, my brother and I had to step in and take action. Um, And fortunately, we had made a lot of preparations that we were able to do that um, from the legal side. I mean, we were, we had medical powers, durable powers of attorney. I'm going to get all these things wrong, but you'll know what they are. You know, so we had the durable medical power of attorney. We had um, the wills in place. We had stuff about um, guardianship in place where it was, for better or worse, a group decision um, so that it wasn't just my father. Um, and we discussed it. You know, my mother's mental capacities probably were, they definitely were already diminishing somewhat when we had that conversation, but she was able to understand what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, Understanding enough that she wanted to, she didn't want to take all power away from them. Right. But she also understood that they would need some help. So it was the same thing. It was us and her for my father and us and my father for her. So we had the stuff in place that we were able to do a lot of this. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this timeline because first of all, you told me that your father had this massive heart attack, right? Right. And so did you guys have any type of legal documents in place at the time that your dad had that heart attack? No. No, I was a junior in college. Okay. It was Thanksgiving break, my junior year. So you were what, 20? I was 21. And my brother was 13. So, no, we had nothing. I mean, I'm sure my parents had a will. You know, I'm sure there was this type of stuff. Well, when you say you're sure, are you sure? Are you just saying that? I'm saying that. I'm saying that because I know my dad, right? So I know that he had a will. I know that he had some life insurance. I know that he had it taken care of. Did I know it? Absolutely not at 21. And did my mother? No, my mother was a brilliant, wonderful woman. But she was your very classic, you know, 60s. She stopped working when she had kids and she did everything for the family. She ran the uh, house and dad ran the business side of the house. She, she ran the house and he ran the business side of everything to the point that I remember sitting down when he was in the hospital and we were going through some bills and she would say, oh no, I know he paid that bill last month. I'm like, mom, you get this bill every month. It's for the electricity, right? You know, that type of thing. And part of it was emotion for her too. I mean, she was scared at the time. So I think she really knew it, but she just had no exposure to it whatsoever. So here dad has this heart attack and then did you as a family put these documents into place what point after dad had the heart attack did you guys get these documents into place way later way way later so i was um already living in michigan i would think so i moved to michigan in 89 he had his heart attack in November of 82. Um, I've just told everyone how old I am. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, So it was much later. And really what started some of the documents, the best thing that we did was have a discussion about about long-term care insurance. And so that was really the first thing that we did. We didn't even put these other documents, the the durable power of attorney, all that stuff, we really did at the last minute. We did it within a year or two of having to take action. You mean with your mother? With my mother. Okay. Yes. Okay. We did we did we didn't do all those things until somewhere post two thousand Six. So what made you realize that you needed to do it? What was the aha moment? The aha moment was getting everyone on the same page that, yes, she was she had Alzheimer's and yes, it wasn't going to get any better. And yes, we had to do something about it. Um, and until we could get everyone on that page, I don't think we really were able to have that discussion with my parents. That's interesting. So you, okay. My question here is that 
you'd had quite a bit of what I would consider wake-ups, right, related to care and the emergencies and, and the stress that comes along with very serious medical crises. I mean, your family had been pretty exposed by the point you got to doing it to the fact that there are a lot of um, permutations, right? <laughs> and yet um, you waited, and it was more, I'm, what I think I'm hearing is that it had to do with your parents' resistance to the conversation? Well, it, it had to do, at the time that we decided to have it, I mean, when my father had his heart attack and then he was fine, he was fine, right? I mean, he was, he made lifestyle changes, he went back to work, everything was fine from that point on. I mean, there was always my mother hovering over him, but it was those discussions about all the other, the legal documents and all that stuff really centered around a need that we saw coming quickly because of my mom. And so, yes, it was their resistance. You know, we had to, we had to get to a point that we could have that conversation in a way without hurting without insulting and without um, inciting anger and frustration is what is what I would say and I don't know that it was necessarily that conscious at the time that's me looking back mm-hmm. on what the process was mm-hmm. and I think a realization that comes you know when you look back at it as, as kids you don't want to have to take you know it's not that you don't want to take care of your parents you don't want to think that you have to do that. You want to think that your parents will be able to make those decisions and take care of themselves. Um, so I'm not talking financially. I'm, not, I'm just saying you don't want to step in and become the parent. Well, right, and you don't want to play God either, right, about pulling the plug or decisions about what to do at that time either. Those are very difficult decisions, even if you've talked about it, right? Yes, and they're more difficult when they're a group decision. I hate, you know, they really are. Oh, yeah. So that, okay. So I'm going to go back because I, I'm, there's a point I really want to get to with what I'm going with you is that, you know, you just said, well, dad was fine after he had his heart attack, right? But that's an interesting thing to say, right? Because what I see is that you had gotten a very clear signal that life is potentially short or that unexpected things may happen. You as a family had received a clear signal. And so despite the fact that you had received that signal, that when things went back to normal, so to speak, then everybody was like, okay, everything's fine. I mean, that's sort of what I'm hearing. And I think that's common. Like, it's not that it's you or you guys. It's just that it is very common to feel like, oh, okay, well, thank goodness that that worked out and dad's fine and now you know and and then to just keep going and yet you had received a very very clear signal that an unexpected event may happen at any point right absolutely in all honesty i was young and not thinking about financial stuff and legal the legal aspects of it i was thinking much more of just the emotional and all the other aspects and it wasn't until later in life that the other things started to come into the picture for me. I mean, my mother, for as long as I can remember, said to me that this is our house. This is where we're going to live. We are never moving to a nursing home. I'm not living with a bunch of old people. This is, you know, I'm not leaving this house. And that discussion was early 
And that discussion was later. Um, and that was the biggest sticking point because my father really felt he had made this promise to her that they had made this promise to each other that they would never, ever put each other into any sort of assisted type living, right? Or nursing home. Okay, so and, did and that I remember, happen? Um, oh, it did, and, and it had to happen. But I remember even as they got older and as this was happening, they agreed to go look at some places together. And they'd come back and my mother would go, well, I'm not living there. There were people with walkers. There, There's old people there. I'm like, mom, you're old, you know? I mean, like... It doesn't mean you're going to have a walk, walk or just because you live there, you know, there, but they loved their house. And so the house was really became a big point of discussion and the care and the whole thing they did. It got to the point and, and I'll jump ahead. I, I mentioned to you that um, my mom went through an angry and violent phase. I had made a trip out to Philly because of it, because my father would call and would say, you know, she's chasing me around the house. Uh, I don't know what to do. My brother called one day and he had gotten that phone call. It really, so he was on the phone with my father and I, from New York to Philly, and I was on the phone with my mother. It was obvious we had to do something. One of the lessons that I learned, which is really interesting, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense, is you can not call 911 from out of state. If you call, if I call 911 wow. in Michigan, I get attached to 911 operators in Michigan. Yes. If you call 911 in New York, you get attached, direct, you know, connected. <laughs> wow, so that is we, really interesting. And you know what? This is the first time that I've actually really thought about that. But that's a great wake up. Call 911 only in the state in which you're located because you can't call for somebody out of state. Right. Wow. So we ended up. My brother had called the doctor, explained what was going on, and had the doctor call 911. My brother, we had him keeping my father somewhat calm out of the house. And I was having the calmest, most, I hate to say word rational, but somewhat rational conversation with my mother. Lovely conversation, waiting for the police and EMS to arrive because we knew we had to have her removed from the house because of where it had escalated. And we were unfortunately not prepared at all because they had, at that point, we had convinced them to have some help in the house a few hours, a few days a week. We had not done much about looking elsewhere. And, why and was that? I was going to a support group here for caregivers. It was mostly men my father's age, so it was a really interesting perspective for me. Um, and so through that, I was able to get some, some help and guidance from the woman who was running it. But we um, stayed on the phone. I'll never forget. My mother said, oh, wait, I think I need to put you on hold. The police are here and there's an ambulance here. Let me go talk to them. And I said, mom, let them come to you because I wanted to hear, right? She was lucid enough and rational enough at that point that they were like, oh, everything's fine. And they were prepared to leave. And I could hear it. And I said, mom, please let me talk to them. Just give me the phone. She said, absolutely. So I got on the phone and I explained what was going on. And I said, you cannot leave that house without my mother. Even though, because she sounded so rational that they might not have been inclined to do that. Exactly. I said, so if you need to ask her a couple questions about what's going on, who the, you know, ask her those things. She may answer them. Well, I am telling you, this is the situation. This is what, this is what has happened. Was it a Uh, life-threatening situation potentially for your father? 
it could have been. Okay. It, it could have been. Would it have been? I don't think so, but it really could have been. And so, um, because of just the whole thing, um, because my mother was who she was, she was very calm and she walked out with them. Um, and that was the last time she was in that house, um, which was really difficult. We had her taken. The only thing we could do immediately was taken to a what is essentially an Alzheimer's unit at the local hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't stay there for long. Hopped in the car you know, made a bunch of phone calls, did what had to, did some research and found a longer term solution. And so had my mother moved by, uh, she was there for a week and then by ambulance rather than by us, because that's what they recommended would be the easiest transition moved to an Alzheimer's facility. This concludes part one of my interview with Steve Frank, but please join us for part two, where Steve continues the journey with his mother's Alzheimer's, discusses the financial and emotional effects of his mother having to go into an Alzheimer's facility, tells us what they were glad that they did, and what advice he would give to others going through this with a loved one. Thanks for listening. Now that you're starting to get the knowledge you need to make better planning decisions, don't let your journey stop there. Nicole's incredible guide, Five Tools You Need to Be Truly in Control of Your Future, includes smart planning options and worksheets you can gain access to right now. And the best part is you can download it for free by going to smartplanning101.com tools right now. Time is flying by, so don't wait another day to download this must-have guide. And we'll see you next time on the Smart Planning 101 podcast. The information contained within this podcast does not constitute legal or financial advice. It's for general informational purposes only. For advice specific to your situation, consult with your legal or financial professional.